morning, everyone. This morning we're going to deal with a passage of scripture which I know will be familiar to most of you, if not all of you. Um, so if you would like to turn in your scriptures or on your phones or whatever you're using to Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. Just have a look there and perhaps um, raise your hand if you've read that passage before. Passage of uh, the story of the shepherds in the, in the Christmas narrative. Now, I would guess that most of you have probably read it more than once, um, and I'm guessing that probably a lot of you have read it many, many times. Um, anyone care to hazard a guess? Who's, have any of you read it more than 50 times in your lifetime? In first service, there were plenty of people who'd read it more than 50 times. <laughs> You only have to read it once a year, um, and that would put a lot of first service into having read it more than 50 times. I reckon I've probably read it at least 100 times. Um, and that brings with it some problems. Um, there's a, there's a well-known proverb. It's not a biblical proverb, but it is a well-known proverb that says familiarity breeds contempt. That's right. And it means that to have an extensive knowledge of someone or something often leads to a loss of respect for them or for it. And I think in the case of the shepherds, they suffer from a very serious case of familiarity breeds con contempt for our understanding of their role in the nativity. Because they're shepherds, right? And we all know what shepherds do, don't we? They look after sheep. It's obvious. They're a dirty, smelly, ragtag bunch whose place in the Christmas story serves to remind us that the gospel is for common people such as us, as well as kings and wise men, isn't it? Or is it? Sometimes I think we're so familiar with the shepherd's story that we think we know it inside out and back to front. And it's at that point that we stop listening and we may well read the words of the shepherd's story in our Bible, but we don't allow it to speak to us because we think we already know all it has to say. And we become a little bit like the child who has the fingers stuck in the ears saying, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. I don't know about you guys, but my brother and sister and I did that a lot. Um, and since the Bible is the primary way through which God communicates with us today, that is a terrible way to be reading your Bible. But it's what we do when we think we know already what God has to say. So today we're going to try and leave all of that behind us. We're going to try and put behind us all of our preconceived ideas about these shepherds and we're going to dig deep into their story to try and unearth what I think is some pure treasure there. And it's something that I think has forever changed the way that I will think about these shepherds and their role in the Christmas story. So here's a scene that you're probably all very familiar with. It's the obviously the nativity scene. We've got it here and we've got it up the back. We've got it all around us at Christmas. It's on our cards. And we know the familiar song, Away in a Manger. There's a manger. There's no crib for a bed, so little Lord Jesus is laying down his sweet head. 
and there's stars in the bright sky looking down where he lay and little Lord Jesus is asleep on the hay. Then there's cattle lowing, which I presume means making a noise. And of course there's the shepherds who've hurried to the scene of this little stable. They've managed to find it in the town of Bethlehem, seemingly without the aid of any kind of map or direction. And to me, strangest of all, in so many of these depictions of the nativity scene, they've often brought the sheep with them, which if you've ever spent time around sheep, you would know is um, something that's not advisable if you're trying to get somewhere quickly. And it's certainly not something I would be doing if I was going to visit a newborn king. So we're going to take a look at the word of God and see what it has to say about this little scene. So if you would turn to that passage, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now there are quite a number of stories about great shepherds in the Bible. How many can you think of? There's Jacob, probably the earliest story that we know of. He tended Laban's flocks for 20 years. And you can find his story in Genesis. And then there's Moses, 40 years in the wilderness, much of it shepherding his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. Then there's, of course, the most famous shepherd of them all, David, whose story can be found in Samuel. And then there's also the prophet Amos. Now, in spite of these many great men, shepherding was a despised profession and first century shepherds had a very poor reputation. In part, this came about because the flocks that they were looking after were generally not their own flocks. They belonged to someone else and they were doing their work largely unsupervised in dangerous environments. And so as such, it was easy for them to steal a little wool, a little milk, maybe even a whole animal. 
and to blame the loss on bandits or on wild animals and no one was any the wiser. Their reputation, in fact, is summed up in this Jewish commentary on the 23rd Psalm, which says there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. Now, in addition to this problem of reputation that they had, it was also impossible for shepherds to remain clean since they were continually exposed to sheep manure and dead animals. And so, according to Leviticus, the state of the shepherd was one of continual impurity and also ceremonial defilement. And so as a result, they were not able to participate in any of the temple or synagogue activities. And yet it was to such as these that the angel announced the good news of great joy for all people. And so for me, it begs the obvious question, why? Why shepherds? Now, I'm one of those annoying people that isn't happy to accept things as they are just because that's how they are. All my life, I've been asking why, and that's how I ended up as a research scientist. But I also want to know what and where and how, and we're going to deal with all of those questions today. There's going to be a lot of questions this morning. But my overriding question is why? Why shepherds? Now the obvious answer, given what I've just said about the reputation and social standing of your average first century shepherd, is that this announcement to the shepherds demonstrates that the gospel is for everyone, even to the lowest of the low. And that's a great thing, because we're all sinners before God. And it's a good explanation, and it certainly rings true. Although if you're anything like me, this may then cause you to ask, well, why not send the angel to a group of prostitutes or to some widows or even send the angel off to the local tax collector's convention? Why shepherds? Now, some will argue that this first announcement to the shepherds prefigures Christ as the good shepherd. And that's another good explanation. And I could fill the rest of this morning's message teasing out that analogy, but I'm not going to, because what I want us to do for the rest of this morning is to put aside some of these preconceived ideas that we have about first century shepherds, because I'm convinced that these were not ordinary first century shepherds. So we're going to begin by just looking closely at the text and letting the passage speak to us. And the very first sentence we read said, and there were shepherds living out in the fields. Where? Nearby. You see, so familiar are we with the concept of shepherds that we quickly skip over this introductory sentence because we know the answer. And the one small little word nearby is lost. And that one small little word would have set the scene to first century readers, but it is completely lost on us today. The shepherds were nearby. And this begs the next question, nearby to what? And it's not a trick question, and it's not even a tricky question. It's a very obvious question. They were nearby to Bethlehem. The previous verses talk about Mary giving birth in Bethlehem. 
So why is it a big deal that these shepherds were nearby to Bethlehem? And to find out the answer to that, you have to dig a little bit through what's called the Mishnah, which is a written record of Jewish oral tradition. And if you have a look through there, you will see that this Mishnah expressly forbids animals to be kept anywhere in Israel except in the wilderness. And further, it states that any flocks otherwise kept would be those used for temple services. So what this one little word points to is that these were no ordinary shepherds and the sheep that they were looking after were not ordinary sheep. These were temple shepherds looking after sheep that were destined for sacrifice. You see, the hills around Bethlehem were known for the production of sacrificial lambs to be used in the temple. And if that doesn't give you an aha moment, then nothing I say will. So we'll start with the sheep. These were not ordinary sheep. Very large flocks grazed the hills around Bethlehem and they needed to be large because of the large number of sheep that were required for the sacrificial system. So all of these various sacrifices and offerings were spelled out in the Torah, specifically in Exodus and Leviticus. Twice every day at the third hour, which is 9am, which incidentally is when Jesus was put on the cross, and also at the ninth hour, which is 3pm, which incidentally is the same time Jesus breathed his last breath. So each day at 9am and 3pm, a male lamb without spot or blemish was offered. And this offering was called the Tamid offering, which means a continual offering. So it happened every day, twice a day, continually, to enable the people to stand continuously before a holy God. And this particular offering is, strictly speaking, the only offering which required a male lamb without spot or blemish and could not be substituted by anything else, a goat or, or something else. Now these two daily offerings alone bring the total number of lambs required per year to somewhere between 706 and 770. And you say, well, that's a large range. Couldn't you be more specific? The reason for that range is because just like we have a February leap year where we add an extra day, the Hebrew calendar has either 12 or 13 months and hence the, the large variation in that number. But in addition to that 700-odd lambs, there were literally thousands more lambs required for Passover, as well as for various other offerings. And of course, all of the firstborn males belonged to the Lord. Now, the shepherds required to look after all these sheep would have likewise been no ordinary shepherds. So often shepherds in our nativity scenes are depicted as being young boys. And there is some reason for that, because shepherds in the Bible were often boys in their late teens. Remember when Samuel came to visit Jesse and all of the brothers were paraded out before him, all except for the youngest one, David, because he was off tending the sheep and had to be brought in. 
the role of the shepherd often fell to the youngest, perhaps because they were the most expendable in the family or the least important, or because they simply weren't considered old enough to do the more important things, such as fighting in battles. The actual age of conscription at the time was, was 20. So anyone less than 20 would be off doing other things, likely tending the sheep. The shepherds of the temple flock were not uneducated boys. These were trained men, and they were probably closer in age to 30 years. And they had been well educated in the requirements of sacrifices, and they were specifically trained for this task of producing lambs without blemish. And their work was done under the watchful eye of the temple priests. So these guys had no ordinary job. Their shepherding role, of course, involved all the things that all the other shepherds did, looking for good feeding grounds for the sheep, making sure that the flock was healthy and safe. But in addition, they were also required to maintain a ceremonially clean stable for the birthing of these sacrificial lambs. And they couldn't just leave the ewes alone to give birth because these shepherds needed to make sure that none of the animals were hurt or damaged or blemished during or immediately after birth. And it was their task to verify those that were without blemish and also those that were the firstborn males, which is an important job given how often sheep have twin births. So how did they do this job? Well, identifying a firstborn male is relatively easy and at birth the, the shepherds would tie uh, a red thread or string loosely around the necks of the, the firstborn males. And you might recall another instance in the Bible where something similar was done, uh, where a certain midwife uh, attending the birth of Judah and Tamar's twin sons tied a red cord around the hand of the first one to be born or to stick his hand out. But then he pulled the hand back and then the, the second son, Perez, was born first. Now, while identifying a firstborn male is relatively easy, ensuring that an entire flock remains without blemish is a much more difficult job. So even the hooves had to be flawless without any chips or cracks, or splits. And so at birth, it is said that the shepherds would wrap the hooves with strips of linen to protect them. And also prior to sacrifice, each animal would have to be inspected to ensure that it was indeed without spot or blemish. And so the young lambs would be bound with strips of gauze-like cloth to prevent them from thrashing about and potentially injuring themselves while they were being inspected and prepared for sacrifice. Verse 12 says that the angels tell the shepherds that you will find the baby wrapped in cloths. Now there's a Greek word used here which I put up on the, on the overhead. I won't even try to pronounce it. But it's basically the past tense of a verb which means simply to wrap. And that verb itself is derived from a noun, sparganon, which means band. And so we see that swaddling cloths were used in the handling of newborn infants, but swaddling bands 
were used to subdue animals in preparation for sacrifice. And that is the word specifically used here, although its meaning becomes a little blurred in our English translation. So the sacrificial lambs were restrained during inspection to ensure that they didn't blemish themselves. And indeed, a sacrifice was only considered valid if it had been bound. And that is why Abraham bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar in obedience to God before God provided the ram for that sacrifice. And I believe that that's one of the reasons why the newborn baby Jesus was found wrapped in swaddling bands. The message that was encoded in those strips of gauze was this is the Holy One, the perfect Lamb. Now some scholars suggest that this wrapping and inspection was done by placing the Lamb in a depression carved out of limestone rock which was known as the manger. In which case the manger into which the infant Jesus was placed might have looked something like that. The Greek word which is rendered manger is fatni and it can be used to refer to a feeding trough but it can also be used to refer to the stall where the animals are housed. Whether we're talking here about the actual feeding trough or about the stall itself, it really doesn't matter. Whatever it was, these shepherds knew exactly what it was. The term manger is used three times in Luke's birth narrative. So the first use is in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 to 7. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now some manuscripts, including one which is the authoritative text of the Greek Orthodox Church, doesn't say Mary laid him in a manger, but that she laid him in the manger. And it seems that in an attempt to smooth out the rendering in our English language, um, the Greek definitive article, which we would translate to be the, has been replaced with an a, because it sounds better when we read it in English. The second time we see this phrase is in Luke chapter 2, verses 12. You will find an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Again, some of the manuscripts here also say in the manger. The third time it appears is in verse 16. They found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. And in this particular verse, all of the manuscripts have the word the manger. They found the infant lying not in any old manger, but in the manger. And I believe this meant something very significant to our shepherds. So have you ever stopped to wonder just how the shepherds found the baby given the very limited directions, as we would see them, that they were given by the angels? There was no map. There was no GPS reference given. All they were told was that he could be found in David's city, that is in Bethlehem, and would be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. If indeed every inn and perhaps many of the houses had a small stable out the back, that's not much of a description to go by. 
And as a child, I used to uh, imagine the shepherds running up and down the streets, peering into windows, trying to find the one that had a baby lying in a manger. This morning's text gives us no indication that the shepherds had any doubt about where they were going to. Perhaps having had some priestly training or at least exposure to it, they might have already knew the location from scripture because the prophet Micah foretold it 700 years earlier. And since this particular location was also the only place where swaddling bands and a manger were likely to be found together, they had all the directions they needed and off they headed. Micah 5 contains the key prophecy identifying Bethlehem as the birthplace of Christ. You probably know it well because it's often read at Christmas. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. It is a well-known and often quoted passage, but it is not all that this prophet had to say about the birthplace of Christ. If you go back a little bit to Micah chapter 4 verse 8, we have a much overlooked verse in which further details of the birthplace of Christ are given. The passage reads, As for you, O watchtower of the flock, which in Hebrew is Migdal Ada, O stronghold of the daughter of Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now for us, this passage is completely meaningless in terms of location. Most of us would have little idea about what the watchtower of the flock is, let alone about where we might find it. But for the temple shepherds, had they been aware of this passage, it would have been as good as providing them with a map reference. They knew exactly where Midgal Ada was. It was a place they visited regularly and they knew exactly what went on there and would have understood immediately the significance of a baby being born there. Even if they had no knowledge of this passage, which is probably unlikely, the key words wrapped in cloths and lying in the manger spoken by the angel would have been enough to point them to this location. The church historian Eusebius links the fields between Bethlehem and Jerusalem with this biblical site called Migdal Ada, which means watchtower of the flock. And its first mention occurs way back in Genesis. So back in Genesis, Jacob and Rachel at one point are recorded as moving on from Bethel. And we see Bethel right here. And they travel down here through what would have been Jerusalem area down to, to Bethlehem. Uh, verse 16 says they moved on from Bethel while they were still some distance from Ethrath. Rachel gave birth and had great difficulty. So Rachel died and was buried on the way. So somewhere, somewhere around here. But Israel, that is Jacob, moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Ada. 
Now this area called Bethlehem in biblical times covered a larger area than Bethlehem today. And Migdal Ada, the watchtower of the flock, was said to be on the outskirts of that city, but still part of the city. Migdal Ada was a two-storey stone tower in the shepherd's fields on the outskirts of ancient Bethlehem. From the second storey, the chief shepherd would watch over the lands for any danger that might be coming at the sheep. But the ground floor was special. That was where the ewes of the temple flock were brought in to birth the sacrificial lambs under the watchful eye of these priestly shepherds. It was here that the lambs were wrapped in cloths and it was here that the manger could be found. And it was here that the unblemished lambs were verified ready for sacrifice. So, no further explanation needed for these shepherds. They knew exactly where to go and off they went. So in terms of location, the only details that are given in the birth narrative are found in Luke chapter 2, verse 17. And there we're told she wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. And aside from the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that is the sum total of all the detail of location we're given in the Gospels. Matthew tells us simply he was born in Bethlehem. Mark and John provide no account of the birth of Christ. And Luke adds this simple fact that there was no room at the inn. Now the traditional interpretation is that because there was no room at the inn, they went round the back of the inn and found a stable and set up there. But that's not what the text said. It says simply there was no room at the inn. And so we have a couple of options. And what I like about the Migdal Ada option is that it takes this birth of the Holy One of God out of a dirty, noisy, smelly stable and into a birthing room that was kept ceremonially clean by temple shepherds. It places his birth among the Passover lambs and by doing so it alludes to the very reason for his being right from the moment of his birth. Christ became the Passover Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. It also explains how the shepherds were able to find the infant Jesus in Bethlehem and why the swaddling cloths were such an important clue to them. The location is grounded in prophecy and for me, it provides me with a satisfactory answer to my initial question, why shepherds? Why are they part of this story? So coming back to my original question then of why shepherds, why was this good news delivered first to some shepherds on a hillside near to Bethlehem? Why were they the first to visit after the birth of Jesus? And why are they part of this story at all? And I believe the answer is relatively simple. I believe it is because it was their job to be there. It was their job to be present at the birth of the sacrificial lambs. It was their job, or perhaps more correctly, it was their holy calling to verify them to be without spot or blemish and to certify them for sacrifice. And it was these men that the angels called upon 
to bear witness to the coming of the Lamb of God, the holy and perfect one who would bring an end to all need for animal sacrifices by offering himself the superior sacrifice once and for all. And so the precise location of the birth of Christ, whilst it's fascinating for us to think about, will always be secondary to this reason for his coming. The location, whilst nice to know, is not essential to our faith. And so there's room for a variety of points of view. That he died and rose again, these are the fundamental truths that bind us together in Christ. So what was the reaction of the shepherds to all of this? Verses 17 to 19 say, When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And you know, it's one thing to be pondering some good news that will cause great joy for all the people being relayed from an angel by a bunch of dirty, scruffy shepherds who happen in their excitement to have charged in as your first visitors after birth. That there is quite a lot to ponder. But it's quite another thing altogether to have those that prepare the temple sacrifices attend your maternity bedside. What a lot this young lady had to ponder. And as for the shepherds, verse 20 says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now I have agonised this last six weeks over what to present this morning because we're all so familiar with the traditional nativity scene. And I don't want to upset anyone's image of the nativity and I certainly didn't want to be thrown out as a heretic before I even reached my six-month mark here. And so I have battled with what to present today. But in the end, for me, it has boiled down to this one thing. Knowing what I know about these shepherds and their place in the Christmas story has given me a new appreciation for God's perfect plan and the way that he has woven that plan together through all time. And that has given rise to a desire to glorify and praise God even more this Christmas for all that he has done. That was the reaction of the shepherds who returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. And isn't that just what our reaction should be at Christmas? May it be your reaction this Christmas as you reflect on all that he has done for you. So what then is the, the message of these shepherds? Well, I think it's the very same message echoed by John the Baptist some 30 years later. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is, they whisper, the perfect and spotless one born in that very same place where all the sacrificial lambs were born, wrapped just as they were wrapped and laid in their manger, the manger. And I just think how very like it is, like our Father it is, that he has arranged things just so. The other message that these shepherds have spoken to me uh, as I've been preparing this is more of a personal one, I guess, 
but it relates to how I approach the word of God. You know, I've read the Christmas narrative, as many of you have, many, many times over, without ever really stopping to listen to what the word is saying through these shepherds because I thought I already knew exactly what it was saying. And it makes me wonder what else I might be missing. Sometimes merely to read is not sufficient. We need to immerse ourselves and to ask the hard questions of God and get busy with the work of digging into his word. So my question to you this morning is how do you approach the word of God? Are you allowing God's word to speak to you? Or do you approach it with your eyes open but your ears jammed shut? Are you actively seeking to dig deeper into his word or are you satisfied with just a superficial skim read? Are you regular and active in one of our Bible study or care groups? Or are you too busy to go deeper? This Christmas... May the shepherd's story fill us all again with a renewed sense of awe and wonder for God's perfect plan for our salvation. And may our response to the coming of the Lamb of God, this perfect and superior sacrifice, be just like that of the shepherds who glorified and praised God and then were eager to spread the word about this child. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We love your word and we long to, to know it better, to know it more and to have it go down deep and take root in our lives. Father, we thank you for the shepherds and for their place in this story. Lord, we thank you that you did send your son, that perfect, spotless and holy lamb who would bear the sin of the world on his shoulders. Father God, we thank you for Christmas. And Lord, we, we glorify and we praise you as we, we reflect on all that it is and all that you have done for us. Amen.